You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, R.A. Conwade, and my guest today, uh, returning once again, is uh, David Cleon. Uh, David, could you introduce yourself? Um, hi, I'm David Cleon. Uh, longtime Blogging Heads Heads may remember me from when I worked for this site uh, with REA and Bob, uh, and, and I would host these from time to time. I think my last appearance was earlier this year when I went on with Bob, actually the first time Bob and I had ever gone on the same one together, um, to, to have it out about uh, Twitter trolls and um, whether they're productive. And, and actually, I suppose a, a good coda to that, which I'm sure Bob will appreciate, is that uh, that was at the height of the primaries when they were competitive. And mm-hmm. I was uh, very openly for Bernie Sanders. Um, and that must have been back in like February when it looked for a moment like Bernie really could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, you know, here we are in June. And I think it's fair to say at this point that um, uh, mean Twitter discourse certainly didn't get Bernie the nomination, uh, whether it was the decisive factor in denying it, I think is much more debatable, but I think, um, I think it is among the things that we might, uh, want to, uh, look at soberly in hindsight. Um, yeah. So yeah, there there was like a 10 day or so 10 to 14 day period where it seemed like Bernie was going to win it. And then I guess the, um, uh, uh, Klobuchar and Mayor Pete, dropped out within 24 hours and endorsed Biden. And that kind of started. Well, it was, it was really right before that when Biden won South Carolina bigger than expected that I think things started to, to go sour in hindsight, but. um, So it seems like a different world in many ways. um, Yeah. February of 2020. You know, I'm other, other than, um, other, other than Bernie losing, I I can't really think of uh, anything about (laughs) the present that I find, um, uh, inferior to the way life was back in February. <laughs> Things have been basically great. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy about my candidate, but otherwise it's, it's been a bit pretty chill year on the whole. <laughs> uh, um, how, how are, how are things in Jersey City, Ari? Uh, I mean, well, that's actually something I, I do want to talk about. Okay. So, um, so our, our theme is kind of going to be, um, uh, what's happening in New York City right now, especially what's happening with, um, the protests and the uh, cops and Mayor Bill de Blasio. And um, and then we might talk about the protests more broadly, maybe some other New York City things. But actually one of the, we can save this for later, one of the one of the interesting things, and things are moving so quickly that maybe this, by the time this episode airs, this will no longer be true. As far as I know, there's been no um, violent protests or looting uh, or police violence or like bricks thrown in New Jersey protests since this started. As far as far, at least nothing that made no viral clips as like the, the protests in Newark were a hundred percent peaceful, no arrests. The ones um, covered by our mutual friend, Michael Tracy. <laughs> um, but the, the times that are a write up of that, which we can link to, but then I'm in, I'm in Jersey city, which, for people who don't know, is across the Hudson River from Lower Manhattan. Uh, there have been some protests here. Uh, there's been no, um, no, no violence, uh, no looting, um, and why that is exactly might might um, be something to discuss. Uh, but but I guess I, I I reached out to you thinking like, you know, what is what is happening with Bill De Blasio? Let's talk a little about 
about that. There was a funny tweet that says something like de Blasio managed to have both the, you know, like leftist protesters and the cops hate his guts. Well, you, uh, you know that, that meme you see sometimes where they're like two fists clasped in, uh, in unity yes. on something. I saw a variant on it where it was like seven, seven fists of various hues clasped in unity and they're labeled like, you know, the protesters, the cops, Democrats, Republicans, former staffers, current staffers, et cetera. And they're all clasping the, the concept of hating Bill de Blasio. Right. Um, okay. So, so Bill de Blasio, yeah. what went wrong? How <laughs> did it go wrong so badly? Uh, and so I did, I was doing, and you, you called me out on this, but it, I was doing some mild trolling, but I was recalling that. Oh, that's right. That is where this starts, doesn't it? With, with 2013, 2013 was, <laughs> you know, the, the mayoral elections aren't off years. 2013, um, uh, de Blasio, uh, ran. The real election was in the Democratic primary. Uh, his primary, the main competitor was this woman, Christine Quinn, who, uh, was seen as the establishment choice. I believe she like had a power base in the West Village and she was, uh, and she's a lesbian. So it, it was kind of like, oh, if we elect her, it'll be this huge thing. It's never been a woman, um, mayor of New York City. And then, but de Blasio, um, uh, triumphed. And then he won in a, a landslide. I think he won like 72% or something uh, in the general election against whoever, was it Loda? Was that the one where it was Joe Loda, the uh, uh I think MTA that's guy? right. I think that's right. It's been a long time, but that sounds right. Right. I mean, de Blasio is well into his uh, second term now, so. Right. So it was, and then he had, his message was, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, A Tale of Two Cities. Yeah. And he was talking about inequality, which was very, <laughs> very hot issue. Uh, right about then, you know, the, I think this must have aligned with the, um, uh, the Piketty, uh, Thomas Piketty's book coming out. And, um, and so, you know, New York City had been governed by, uh, Rudy Giuliani for two terms and then Michael Bloomberg for three terms. <laughs> there had been a Democrat elected since 1989 or something, Gabby Dinkins. And so, you know, de Blasio came in and Dinkins, so- Dinkins who uh, it's probably worth mentioning is the only African American mayor, uh, or non-white mayor for that matter in, uh, New York City's history. Um, and you're right that, that it was then followed by 20 years of Republican until Michael Bloomberg reinvented himself as a kind of neoliberal centrist. But I'm just going to say Republican rule, 20 years of, of non-democratic rule in this extremely democratic city in this ever more democratic state. Um, yeah. So, and, so I mean, it was yeah. very strange that, um, you know, that no Democrat had managed to be elected uh, to the, you know, biggest, most democratic city in the country, even though it has plenty of pockets that are um, conservative or Republican. But anyway, so, okay, t- tale of two cities, inequality, uh, de Blasio, uh, his his wife is African-American, and he has two kids, and he talked about um, how, you know, he feared uh, his son uh, being harassed by the cops or well, right, because it, it was really there, there were there were two signature issues that um he ran on that um both challenged the bloomberg era status quo one was inequality and the, the sort of you know rent crisis housing crisis um and the other was uh stop and frisk and, right. and policing um and with the latter um central to how de Blasio pulled ahead and how he sort of branded his campaign at a critical moment was he did an ad and it's, it's one of the legendary political ads of our time called Dante. Dante is his son who was Mm -hmm. in high school at the time. Um, and Dante is African American. His mother is, and he's biracial and looks like a black 
teenager and identify as a black teenager. He has, uh, he had at the time at least a big afro. Yes, I remember and, that too. And he does this, um, this ad where he talks about, um, stop and frisk policing and, and, and how it needs to end. Uh, and, and he says that's why he's supporting Bill de Blasio and he would even if he weren't my dad. And there's a picture of them walking together. And this, you know, kind of played on everyone's expectations, uh, cause at the time de Blasio is not that familiar. He was the public advocate, which is a weird local office we have. Um, though fun fact about it, uh, the public advocate is next in line to be mayor. Like, uh, if, if the mayor resigns or, or anything huh. happens. And um, more on that in a sec, because it's interesting given who the current public advocate is. But um, but but suffice to say that, uh, you know, at the time it was like, oh, there's this black teenager talking to us, but his dad is white and he's running for mayor on this anti-police violence platform. And, um, you know, stipulating and I think this is what we were arguing about on Twitter, stipulating that the New York Democratic Party, which almost totally controls the state, really hates people voting and has some of the most draconian kind of anti-voter practices of any state in the country. Uh, they, they do all kinds of things to discourage turnout. But I, um, I would just say that, that that's, I mean, that is the state policy. That's not like the, I mean, the, the Democrats conceivably could change it if they wanted to, but that's they, been the state they, policy for a long time. And the Democrats they, could change it. And they there was a GOP governor. Uh, um, yeah, but it's not because of terms and like the, the state Senate is gerrymandered yeah. and that was Republican for a very long time. So there's all these, but yeah, yes, they make it very but, difficult to, but, to but first of all, first of all, voting. the state, the state has swung well to the left in the last decade or so. It is now one of the maybe five bluest states in the country. Um, and our governor, Andrew Cuomo, about whom I have lots of colorful things to say, <laughs> uh, you know, is very happy with these policies that are designed to suppress progressive turnout and progressive movements and protect democratic incumbents and the machine. So that's all to say that Bill de Blasio, when he's won in both primary and general elections, has won with very low turnout. I think it was what, like, like one eighth of eligible voters or something turnout, you know, versus like, I mean, turnout in America sucks generally, but for a presidential election, it would be like over 50. Uh, and, right. you know, the, the, the point being like a few hundred thousand people can get you elected mayor of this city of eight and a half million people. Um, but stipulating that and stipulating that it was a very divided field when he ran and then he didn't face serious opposition in the primary on reelection, um, you know, and the divided field, which included, uh, Anthony Weiner before he imploded, he was the front runner for a while and, and Christine Quinn, like you said, and a few others, um, you know, ultimately the coalition that he put together and that there was some excitement around him, uh, when he first came in was, I would describe as the kind of the um, Obama 08 coalition in miniature, the Obama 08 primary coalition in miniature, which is to say it was a mix of African-Americans. He did very well in those neighborhoods and no doubt the Dante ad was, was targeted at that. Um, And then, you know, the, what do we want to call them? The uh, PMC, the hipsters, the, uh, well, I don't know, white people, professionals, people, people like me who, who, you know, have bookshelves in Brooklyn and whatever the fuck. Good government um, types. Yeah. Like, uh, good government types. Exactly. Uh, you know, and de Blasio, um, before he was the public advocate, I think he had represented Park Slope where he lives in the, uh, city council and, um, which is, 
kind of an iconic, uh, you know, professional yuppie neighborhood. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was sort of seen as like the ascendancy of the new Brooklyn, uh, when, when he came in, uh, and, um, you know, everything's gone great since we've really had a progressive <laughs> renaissance in the city where we all love Bill de Blasio. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's truly realized all our hopes and dreams. Uh, no. Okay. What's okay, so, wait, but, okay. So just a, a couple of things. So, yeah. yeah. So he ran against, um, stop and frisk, but again, correct me if I'm wrong, because this was all happening about, you know, seven years ago or more. Um, there was a, a federal judge who basically harshly proscribed the policy in the, you know, like last year of the Bloomberg administration and kind of was like, you know, it wouldn't have been eliminated entirely, but it would have been like 90% fewer stops or, or something like that. Like, yeah, you know, someone friend, friendly you know, to the policy kept it, it would have been severely limited anyway. So he ran against it. I don't hold that against uh, de Blasio. I mean, it shows that he was, he was right about this issue and Bloomberg was wrong. And, you know, Bloomberg, oh. when he ran in his absolutely far, well, I guess they both ran farcical campaigns for president <laughs> last year, Bloomberg and de Blasio. But in Bloomberg's, when he went to that one, you know, um, incredibly hilarious debate where, where Elizabeth Warren destroyed him. Um, I, I believe it was either in or right before that debate, um, Bloomberg finally said that stop and frisk was a mistake without actually apologizing for it, uh, even though he spent 12 years defending and implementing it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was unconstitutional. It was racist. Um, it it was uh, a symbol of everything that was wrong with the Bloomberg era. Um, yeah. And, well, what, uh, I'm, what I'm basically yeah. saying is if someone, if like Bill de Blasio didn't exist and someone else had won, Stop and first policy either would have gone out anyway, or or it would have been drastically reduced. So like Pro- he was probably, although that doesn't, you know, I don't think that discredits him. But fortunately, there are plenty of other things to discredit Bill De Blasio. But right, first- right. but then the other thing, and maybe <laughs> I, I don't know even how this really worked out. But like the other thing he ran on was um, universal pre K. Like that, that was a yes. huge issue, and, and he, he actually did. did it. He did implement that, right? But he I, did I, it. I don't know like how people think that has worked out or anything. Uh, it's, but you know, I don't have kids, but by, by all accounts, um, it is a great policy success and something that the de Blasio administration and people who backed it can be very proud of. It was like an actual meaningful extension of the welfare state. And it's not just about the kids and their education getting pre-K. It's about making it possible for their parents to work and support them in this increasingly unaffordable city. It was just considered wins all around. It's the kind of thing you would want to see, you know, a hypothetical Sanders administration or God at this point, a hypothetical Biden administration roll out nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there's been that. And, you know, for a while um, you could argue that New York hadn't changed that much from the Bloomberg era, but uh, you know, there were some good initiatives here and there. And I would say progressives mostly complained about de Blasio for, you know, not going as far as he'd implied he would, um, for being too deferential to various traditional interests, basically for being a normal mayor. Meanwhile, I would say the city establishment, including what Republicans there are in New York, plus like media elites in Manhattan, people in wealthy neighborhoods in Manhattan and Brooklyn, um, have generally hated de Blasio. Um, you know, it's, he's, he's been kind of openly disdained, but for a while, uh, you know, if you were in roughly my progressive camp, you could kind of brush that off because 
you know, they, they hated him because he was, because he talked about two, two cities, because he was critical of the police, um, because he, uh, in general, was just very obnoxious to the press. Yeah, um, he, so he has, he has very bad press relations in general. I mean, <laughs> really know, the city, New York City City Hall press is probably hard to uh, you know ever have like keep them all happy. But well, but Mike Bloomberg, doing, Mike Bloomberg had the clever method of just you know buying off everyone in the creating, city, creating your own um, your new own yeah. organization is one and way to Mike, do it, I suppose. Right, and doing things like you know funding every. Um, nonprofit in the city so that they all say nice things about you all the time. I mean, you know, Bloomberg's mere existence was a terrible threat to democracy. And it's, it's a great thing that he got blown out in the primaries, however else they turned out. But um, de Blasio, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he's had all kinds of silly gaffes where he was the one where he killed a groundhog, the one where he <laughs> forgot about ate, where he ate pizza with a knife and fork. I mean, some of these, it's like whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, the, there's a kind of there's a kind of like um, a certain type of politician does something and it becomes iconic towards them. And the, the, whereas a different type of politician, if they did the same thing, people would just forget about it. So the, the, like the fact that he was seen kind of bumbling meant that when he dropped this groundhog and it, and it later died, like that became iconic. Whereas right. if Barack Obama had dropped a groundhog because he seems like he's in good shape or something, uh, like it, it would have been more of an aberration. <laughs> right. well, in, in de Blasio's case though, what happens is, um, I mean, I would say the longest running sort of fight he's had with the media which seemed silly, but then more and more you start to be like, what is this man's deal? Uh, involved his, gym. his, his gym. So, um, de Blasio lived, well, de Blasio now lives in Gracie Mansion, which is on the upper, upper east side in a very nice park. Um, and, um, his home, which he rents out, uh, is, uh, in South Park Slope, very close to where I used to live. Um, and, uh, very close to this uh, famous YMCA uh, or now famous YMCA in Park Slope. And uh, I guess, is it every day de Blasio takes a motorcade like like 10 miles or whatever it is from Gracie Mansion to Park Slope so that he can work out uh, at this gym and, and go for a walk in lovely Prospect Park um, instead of just taking advantage of the gym and park that are right by him. Uh, and he never takes public transit. And both he and Cuomo have this, um, I mean, if, if you talk to like sort of urbanist progressives who care about things like transit and walkability and biking, um, Cuomo and de Blasio have total contempt for that way of thinking. They govern New York as if uh, everyone here owned a car when half the city doesn't own cars and we have the most extensive public transit system in the country. Um, although it's been languishing under uh, a decade of Cuomo's misrule, as uh, I'm sure you have heard about all the time on Twitter. Yes. Of course, at the moment, nobody nobody is using it, but that's another story. Um, yeah, you don't, you don't and, see very many people saying uh, Governor Cuomo fixed the subways <laughs> these days, yeah, but maybe they'll right. say it again sometime in the future. Well, I, you know, I actually, it's funny you remind me, because very early in this pandemic, which we have avoided directly mentioning until now, um, I had the thought that this would actually be a great time to, you know, try to rush some of the badly needed repairs on the subway and on the signal system in particular, since uh, it's closed for, uh, I guess, what, six hours a night now, and the, most people aren't using it. And, um, you know, so that when this is over, as 
God willing, it, it, it will be eventually we'll, we'll have a functioning subway system again. But, uh, I wouldn't say we have very, um, we have people who think that way in uh, our city or state government. There's not a lot of forward thinking people in it. Um, anyway, this but running just, thing just, about no, I mean, that yeah. it, it is odd that someone who lives in Park Slope, which I assume most of the people who live there um, commute by subway into Manhattan every day. And de Blasio at some point in his life must have ridden the subway. It's just, it's, does he think like someone's going to like heckle him or trying to attack him or something? Is that why he's not riding the subway? Or? No, I mean, you know, I think, I don't, I, I, can, I can't read his mind. He has a very strange mind, but, um, but you know, you grew up on Seinfeld, right? Like, mm-hmm. and Seinfeld set in the Upper West Side, which the Upper West Side of the 80s and 90s was probably similar in a lot of ways to Park Slope. It's, it, it skews older now. Uh, but, um, and, and you notice how there's like one episode of that show where they're on the subway. Whereas they're constantly in cars. Yes, they uh, all own cars. Even, even I think Kramer owns a car because yeah. he doesn't have a job. So uh. right, they they all drive everywhere. And I I think um, for, for kind of affluent white professional types, uh, cars are more common in the city than you would think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very few people my age and younger uh, have cars, and even the handful who do certainly don't like ride them every day. But uh, uh, you know, they're more for like a, a beach trip or something. Mm-hmm. But, um, okay, so, so de Blasio, uh, for some reason that no one can quite understand, <laughs> was committed to doing this elaborate thing that wasted a lot of time and, uh, you know, more like sirens going when he went for the motorcade, like crossing whatever. Yeah, so he, and, and not that like Bill de Blasio alone is responsible for the climate crisis, but for someone who pretends to be a green mayor, I mean, his personal carbon footprint was so grossly unnecessarily large because he had this bizarre attachment to um to to using a particular gym and going to a particular park um and yet he wants to be mayor for some reason and you know <laughs> he's he's absolutely uh stubborn about this and uncompromised what if he had um actually become elected president of the united states you know he would have <laughs> like what would he have done then like had the well well you're you're already describing a universe where where pigs are flying and you know at that I wonder point, if he so... I wonder if he considered that when he decided whether not to run he's like I I guess I really would have to give up maybe go on the weekends or something but oh um... yeah no I I definitely joked that he would be taking you know uh, Air Force One to uh, to Brooklyn every <laughs> every single day to to work out um, you know it would be like his Mar-a-Lago would be the the Park Slope Y. Right. Um, but anyway, this okay, is so, all, so this thing. Okay, so I, I, this thing I, hope that I, is strange. I hope we've painted a picture of Bill De Blasio's delightful personality. Yeah. At work. So he, he, do, but, he, he did. He's strange. He was doing this. This thing is strange. Uh, at the same time, you know, a lot of people warned that if you take away stop and frisk, uh, we're going back to 1988 crime levels. That yeah. didn't happen. So not remotely. Remain safe. People were, not, has, we're not fleeing. City and, under De Blasio had like never been safer in modern times. And so, and yes, so yeah, things were not like like getting yeah, I mean, in obvious ways the, the housing the housing crunch remained disastrous um but in fairness it is a very hard problem to solve um that's not to excuse his record on it uh people i know who would defend him in the kind of yimby school of thought would say that he has actually brought a lot of new um affordable housing online other people would say there's more rent burden than homeless people than ever uh you know these are these are live debates and I'm, I'm not going to actually take a position in them today since it's not our main topic, but right. you know, broadly speaking, if you thought um, if you were the sort of person who believed 
in 2013 that electing Bill de Blasio would um, bring us to the quote-unquote battle days, to a dystopian uh, hell. Um, as of January of this year, that would have seemed very silly um, and hysterical. On the other hand, if you were the type of person who thought he was going to bring in a progressive golden age, um, as of January, that would have seemed very silly too. Um, but mostly you just kind of thought he was this um, oaf, and uh, you would just kind of make fun of him, unless, you know, the people who got really into, like, um, various forms of legal corruption and, and you know, just, just normal New York City stuff um, and, and his kind of ongoing ridiculous feud with Cuomo. But we're here to talk about the inescapable context of everything right now, which is uh, police violence, Black Lives Matter, uh, and the... Uh, sort of national insurrection that's been going on, including here in New York. Right. Um, so, so, okay, well, maybe yeah. let, let's... Uh, and, a moment, and, a moment. and what that says about de Blasio's legacy and, and incidentally what the um, world historical pandemic also says about de Blasio's legacy. Okay, yes, um, we'll, we'll try to cover all of that. So, okay, but yeah. I, 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 let's cast our minds back to a moment that I just looked up when it happened. It was um, December 2014. Um, there was uh, two police officers were murdered sitting in their car by a black man who seemed uh, uh, mentally ill in some way, and he um, and he targeted them and you know shot them shot them dead before they had a, ch- a chance to react. Um, uh, do, you, do you remember this incident? I do, although um, the details of it, I I would need. Yeah, I had forgotten most of them, but I uh, yeah. I, I, I dug up the links so I can find them anyway. But, but, sorry, was this was that before or after the Eric Garner killing? Because that seems like crucial context here. I this uh, this I I can't say actually okay but so but, but can, the reason can we that take this... a quick second and and look up when <laughs> sure, sure you you look that up and I'll just explain that one uh, what ended up happening was that at the funerals of these uh, two police officers um, it was uh, it was in July 2014 so it was a few months before this which seems to me to be crucial context for what you're about to discuss so let's actually start with Garner um, okay. So, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. But most, I think most people remember Garner. So Garner was people the man who was Garner, shot to death. Eric Garner was, yeah, was was an African American man who who was um, selling, was selling loose, loose cigarettes. Loose and, cigarettes because we have very tight cigarette regulations here in New York, and people go to New Jersey to buy them instead. So he was selling loose cigarettes, which is technically illegal, but come on, uh, in Staten Island, and um, the NYPD choked him to death. Uh, an officer named Pantaleo, I think, was the, mm-hmm. the main culprit in this. And um, and this was, you know, coming uh, on the heels of uh, what happened to Michael Brown and uh, was one of the probably most prominent incidents in, in kickstarting uh, Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. across the country. And, um, and so, and so the, the, you, at the video of Garner dying, he's saying, I can't breathe. And so that, you know, which, which, which we saw happening tragically again. Um, right. It was it was it was a terrible tragedy, and I and I marched. I should say I was part of an enormous multiracial peaceful march through Manhattan uh, in the wake of Garner's killing. Um, it took, if I recall correctly, four or even five years to fire Pantaleo from the NYPD. Yes, yeah, uh, which there was constant demand for in in the meantime, uh, which tells you a lot about this. But yes, yeah, so a few months after. Garner uh, and and you know De Blasio, I think at the time had spoken up about what a terrible thing this was. I, I'm sure genuinely. I mean, his family is black. He he ran on on uh, racial justice against police violence. Uh, 
I think he was saying what he really meant at the time. Uh, but then, yes, there was this killing of cops. He attended their funeral. And what happened? And when he was giving the eulogy, you know, so, so often when a cop is killed, hundreds of cops from over the country come to the funeral. Um, uh, the cops uh, turned their backs on de Blasio in, in silent protest of him because of the way he had sympathized with the, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter nascent movement then. And um, you probably don't remember, we actually had a Twitter interchange that I remember weirdly for some reason about whether the cops had the right to, uh, as a free speech matter, to turn their backs on um, on de Blasio. But anyway, so at this point, it kind of seemed like, you oh, know, well, the, my, my the, the rank and file was against, I, <laughs> turned against de Blasio like because they thought he didn't support them. Yeah, and he, and, he, and he was freaked out. He was truly freaked out, which I think is the essential context to everything that's happened since. So, I mean, my view that I, all my tweets from then are deleted, but what I definitely remember tweeting about at the time uh, that that happened, because I remember that was like, um, you know, we all have, those of us who've moved left over the years, we all have our like radicalizing moments and I've had a bunch, but a big one for me was actually this one. Uh, the, uh, the cops turning their back on de Blasio because I remember thinking at the time that, um, it wasn't just that they were turning their backs. Like I think the head of the police union was, you know, call, saying he had blood on his hands. Uh, that wouldn't and, surprise me. And saying that like, and, and, and all but implying that, you know, um, uh, or, or implying an all but outright saying that uh, the cops would just like strike and let someone kill de Blasio and his family or stuff like that. You know, uh, I might be getting the exact details wrong, but that was the tone at the time. And, um, and I remember having tweets to the effect that this struck me as something like a coup um, that, you know, whatever you might say about Bill de Blasio, he was elected by the people of New York. He's our mayor. He runs, you know, he's the chief executive and runs all the city agencies. He's, he's the ultimately accountable person. Uh, and, um, and, and, you know, if you think back to like when, um, uh, Obama fired General McChrystal for, uh, badmouthing him to a reporter, uh, and that was a whole thing. And, you know, there were a lot of people in the media who were sympathetic to McChrystal and mad at the reporter, but there was, still a general understanding at the time that um, civilian control uh, of, of the military is absolute and um, troops don't have to like Obama, but they have to respect him absolutely. And if you're a general and you insult the president of the United States, uh, where, you know, uh, a reporter can hear it and print it, um, then you violated the chain of command and you should be fired. And he was, and that was good. Um and I basically saw, you know, this on a municipal level. I was like, you know, I don't, I don't care if you like the mayor or not. I don't care if the cops have a case or not, which I don't think they did. Um, you know, that, that for, for the people with a monopoly on armed force in our city to, uh, turn their backs on the, you know, elected chief executive of the city and, um, uh, and, and, and basically threaten his family struck me as, uh, you know, a grave threat to democracy. And with, uh, six years hindsight almost, I, uh, I think I was absolutely right about that. And I think we're seeing the, those issues play out now. Uh, well, let, let's just, uh, th- okay, looking back on that event, the turning the backs. So there's the like, um, 
you know, blue lives matter view of it, where it's like, you know, these, these uh, warriors are the thin blue line protecting order from chaos. And then, but what, so what, but what's the, what's the cynical reason for this? Like, why did they actually want to do this? Like they wanted, they wanted, uh, they wanted to go back to stop and frisk. They wanted to hire more police officers. So the union would get more money. Like what is, you look at this through a cynical lens. I mean, I think all they wanted to, to to make sure that De Blasio lost in the next election, which he did not do. What, what were I they? Think, I think. Do? I mean, I can't speak for all of them. I suspect all of those things describe how a lot of them felt and how their union leadership felt. But I think at a more fundamental level, it was they wanted to send an unambiguous message uh, to Bill De Blasio that they didn't see him as having their back that in their view, having their back is an absolute moral principle. Cops don't think in terms of like, uh, I mean, if they do, they stay quiet about it. Uh, they don't think in terms of like, okay, well, like our jobs are difficult and stressful and we need protections and we stand by each other. But also, you know, it's like pretty horrible when an unarmed black person gets shot or choked to death by a cop. They don't think that way. Like the, the prevailing public facing wisdom of, of cops and their forums and their public statements to, to press and unions and everything is like, you know, essentially that black lives don't matter. Um, and that no lives that aren't cop lives matter that, (laughs) um, uh, that, that their authority is absolute that, uh, if you challenge them in any way, including by exercising your own free speech, um, you're taking your life in your hands um, you know, they are rarely prosecuted or fired or held accountable in any way for, uh, for the various abuses they meet out. Um, most of which are not caught on camera and, and not held up for public judgment. Um, and, uh, you know, I think they, they, de Blasio had issued, a, you know, after Garner, I think very tepid criticism of the NYPD. I mean, he went in aware of how much power they have and that he has to stay on their good side. But, um, you know, he had, he had said, uh, mild stuff to, to kind of, you know, reassure his progressive base and his African American base that he felt their pain. Um, and that was too much for the cops. And, you know, to simplify not very much in the years since that incident, Bill de Blasio has been um, completely uh, beholden to the cops. He praises them constantly. He does treat their lives like they matter more than uh, anyone else's. Um, he, he, you know, can't gush about them enough. And that has very much shaped uh, his handling of the past week. Um and uh, it's really sad. It's sad for people, for the many people who supported him on criminal justice um, grounds. And while I have no special insight and can't speak for them, I, I'm I'm going to guess it's sad for his immediate family too, uh, and especially his daughter. Uh, but, but but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself there. Right. We we can discuss that yeah. if, if you want what what happened with her. But um, okay. So there's this, and you'll you can please fill me in if you know the details. Uh, People, I've seen multiple tweets saying like the the cops like at some point as a labor action promised a slowdown of you know the, like no one's rushing to the car to go uh, respond to the nine one one call like we're going to stay in the station unless we have have to leave this kind of thing or like we're cutting down on foot patrols and then um, and they said that, like this will last a week maybe they didn't say this explicitly but like it was communicated and then like nothing there was no change essentially in the level of crime or. Whatever, and then so then the cops just went back to doing things the way they um, yeah 
Did it before? Did that, did that, that crime happen? Did that event happen? Uh, yeah, as I recall, that happened. Uh, crime has been down in the city for a long time. Uh, aggressive policing is, you know, I, I don't, I am resistant to what evidence may exist that it was effective in the 90s, that it was the main reason crime fell starting in the 90s. Uh, I think there's a lot of conflicting evidence and theories about that. Mm-hmm. But in any case, the level of um, aggressive crime and incarceration that we practice now is not only a moral and constitutional nightmare, but I think there's no evidence that it's responsible for the prolonged drop in crime. Um, you know, what is, is, is another question. Uh, it's a very complex sociological question, but the, the broken windows theory, I think, has been pretty well discredited. Um, and, but it is worth noting that, you know, in contrast to de Blasio, uh, Rudy Giuliani ran as the, the, the cops mayor, uh, and they loved him and he gave them free reign. And when they, um, uh, you know, shot, uh, Diallo or when they, um, sodomized a man in custody with a, with a broomstick, um, in, in that era, uh, you know, the, forget which of those incidents they said, like, it's Giuliani time. It was the broomstick one. It was yeah, the broomstick yeah. one, but, I guess that would make sense. But basically, um, yeah, like uh, Giuliani kind of unleashed a reign of police terror. And, you know, if we want to go back even a little further, Dinkins, the African-American mayor who preceded Giuliani and was a Democrat, um, you know, on his, he was a mayor during the Crown Heights riots, which were this, um, uh, I'm just going to say, a very ugly clash in the neighborhood of Crown Heights near where I live, uh, between that, where, where tensions between Orthodox Jews and, um, African Americans and West Indians kind of came to the fore, uh, and, uh, things got ugly and Giuliani demagogued his way to, uh, Gracie Mansion on the basis of that, I think largely, um, as well as just general crime. Uh, some of those tensions have, um, resurfaced just in the last year, but not on the same scale. Um, and uh, no, I mean, despite what uh, right-wingers would like to think, um, Bill de Blasio did not bring us back to the 80s. Uh, you don't need that kind of uh, law enforcement to keep the city livable on a crime level. Uh, and what's happening now uh, is something else. Um, and in some ways, unprecedented. Um, okay, so okay, so so one reason you could imagine De Blasio wanting to stay stay on the side of the cops is this fear of like a police strike that I just outlined right. that seemed like it happened, but maybe didn't have effect. But you could, I mean, let, let's say all the cops, and this is probably illegal, but the cops like actually went on strike, and you know were walking on a picket line instead of responding to any nine one one call. You can imagine various bad things uh, resulting from that, whether or not in a time a normal time or a time of civil unrest. Um, so, so that's one reason, but I, I don't, I mean, what he really does seem, like I said, said earlier, like everyone hates him. The cops hate him, even though he's kissing their ass. And then the protesters hate them because hate him because uh, they're getting their head, their heads bashed in uh, by the cops who seem uh, totally out of control. And yeah, well, I, I do think there's both for why the protests are happening and why everybody hates him in the context of the protest. There's another, you know, small detail that gets us to the present, which is the pandemic. 
Um, so let's let's talk a little about the pandemic and in particular what it's been like here in New York, um, right. because it's been exceptionally bad here in New York. Right. Um, so, so it seems like, you know, uh, de, de Blasio has did a very, very bad job, especially in the early time of this pandemic. Uh, you know, he was telling people, like, go to the uh, a local ethnic festival or something. And, you know, don't, it's not a big deal. I'm going to be seeing a movie this weekend. That kind of thing. Like, go to restaurants, do, do your thing. Right. So uh, really, you know, New Yorkers uh, are resilient. We have the best healthcare system in the world. Now, I want to say, in fairness to Bill De Blasio, Andrew Cuomo was doing exactly the same thing. I mean, pretty much every, um, pretty much everyone in so, America was, so was, was underplaying Trump. it. Yeah. So. And so was Donald Trump. But but the evidence that has been reported by reputable outlets in the weeks since suggests that Trump. But I mean, who's surprised that he fell down on the job? Um, De Blasio and Cuomo all had all the information they needed from public health experts to um, start closing things down a week earlier than they did. I myself, uh, you know, I've tweeted about this, but I I think I am a um, pretty well-informed person. I think most of my friends, you know, the very large percentage of whom work in media are pretty well-informed people, uh, you know, who, who pay close attention to what's happening in places like Wuhan uh, and, um, uh, I had my birthday party, uh, on March 7th, which is a bit after my actual birthday, uh, right after having flown back from a very nice trip, uh, to Europe, to, uh, Paris and Lisbon. Um, and I had, you know, I don't know, 50 or 60 people in, uh, a cramped bar in Brooklyn, uh, on March 7th. Um, and we now know that that should not have been possible. But it's not just that I had it, it's that virtually everyone showed up and people who didn't show up, I don't think it, you know, nobody said like, are you crazy? Don't do this. This is dangerous. Uh-huh. Uh, it was like a few days later that like Tom Hanks got it and they started, you know, um, canceling uh, international travel and and uh, people started to realize this was actually going to hit and hit hard. But, uh, and by the way, Fortunately, though it could have easily been different, um, I don't think in hindsight my party was a super spreader event. Uh, very few people who were there have gotten it. The people who did had mild symptoms, uh, mm-hmm. and who knows where they got the, that. But, um, uh, but you know, it could have turned out much worse, but it wasn't unusual. I mean, I know another person who had a big birthday party that night. Uh, you know, uh, nobody I know would have done anything like that uh, literally days later. Um, and I have not left central Brooklyn since, uh, the middle of March. Um, but, um, or been in any vehicle of any kind since the middle of March. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, um, COVID obviously the, the whole world was unprepared for it and lots of people made terrible mistakes, but the scale of the, uh, death toll in, in New York is, is really exceptional. Um, many people blame that on our density. Um, and I hate that and I'm not going to totally dismiss it because I, I, I mean, I like density and I, 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 I accept the premise that like packing people into subway cars is not great for COVID or, you know, on escalators is not great for COVID. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you look at how places like, uh, 
Hong Kong and South Korea and uh, Taiwan, which have incredibly dense cities, dealt with it. And it can't be the sole explanatory. Yeah, it, yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, density has to do with part of it. Reliance on public transportation has to do with a part of it. Uh, all, in, uh, international travel hub uh, is yeah. has a role. Um, and, right. I mean, you and, have and, and income inequality is is a, another thing. So you have a lot of you know. It, it started out. This is like uh, the rich person. But, but, let's, but let's, not di- let's not dismiss like an immediate term failure of leadership. Just, that's, just okay, that's true. But I problem. think like when when you know every day counted when every. You know. so, so I think the city was primed for it to go wrong. And then like these bad luck things happened. And then also the leaders were incompetent. So terribly uh, incompetent. And in part, uh, there, it's pretty clear now that a long running, uh, aspect of de Blasio's term I haven't really talked about yet is, um, this, this kind of passive aggressive feud between him and Cuomo, uh, where they're constantly casting, um, uh, shade at each other and they're, um, constantly undermining each other, uh, and, uh, you know, screwing something up and saying it's the other's fault. For instance, the MTA, the subway really is Cuomo's fault primarily, but he loves to make it, make people think it's the mayor's fault, which, you know, would make intuitive sense, but it's actually a state agency. Uh, and, uh, so it's, it's always been that back and forth. There's now good evidence that the feud between them, uh, made COVID much worse. And when I say much worse, I mean, like, it might have killed an extra 10,000 people. I mean, who can know? But it's it's really horrifying. Right. So is, is the source of the feud that they're just both giant assholes? Um, I think, or is I think there that's a, pretty a central to it. I, okay. I'm, I'm comfortable saying the primary reason for the feud is that they're both giant assholes. I used to tilt more to de Blasio's side in these fights because I, I really loathe Cuomo. Um, but uh, at this point, a pox on both their houses. <laughs> uh, the New York Democratic Party is irredeemable. Um, so anyway, you know, when you see everyone reacting against um, de Blasio, but also mayors and governors and the president, you know, across the country, um, it's obviously because of Black Lives Matter. But the inescapable um, larger context is the several months of uh, life under quarantine that we've been experiencing during which... Uh, you know, tens of millions of people have lost their jobs, especially younger people, especially people of color, in which communities of color have been devastated. Uh, people have lost family members and not been able to attend their funerals. Uh, you know, weddings have been canceled. Sports has been canceled. Everything has been canceled. Small businesses have gone under, you know, that people poured their, their lives into. Um, the government has, you know, kind of been debating between doing absolutely nothing to help people and doing not nearly enough to help people. Uh, and um, uh, I don't want to go too much into this, but I am, I am of the opinion. I don't want to make everything about Bernie, including this, but, um, but I, I tend to think that among the factors for, why young people are so angry and, you know, radicalized right now is that, uh, as, as people will say, uh, Bernie was the compromise candidate. He got treated like an extreme fringe radical leftist. He was actually, you know, socialist, uh, you know, posturing aside. And he was a socialist, but, you know, at his core, he was a very, very liberal Democrat promising like a kind of very liberal Democrat dream agenda. Um, for which he was unfairly maligned by certain swaths of uh, 
liberals in the media and in the Democratic Party. Um, and he was unique among politicians in my lifetime. I mean, I guess you could say Obama in 08, uh, but he did it in a much less specific way. Um, he was channeling young people's anger and passion at the system into uh, the electoral process in a way that was constructive and that might have worked, but ultimately didn't. Now, I'm not going to say it was stolen from him. He lost fair and square. Biden beat him soundly. He clearly failed to reach older voters, African-American voters. We, you know, that, that doesn't need to be debated here. Um, but he did win uh, by huge margins, everyone under 45. Uh, and, I mean, there's just a stark generation gap, and there's just a lot more voters in the Democratic primary over that age. And so, and, and Biden has, like, his although I think he's going to win anyway, but, uh, but he has historically low trust among uh, younger voters and among the Democratic base. Uh, tr- well, trust and enthusiasm. He has historically low enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, like, among the things going on right now, one is the sense, like, okay, we tried electoralism. We tried to actually do... Define ele- electoralism for people who don't know uh, that term. Yeah, so a lot of people on the left use this term because they basically, and like the democratic socialist left, you know, they basically don't believe in the political system. Uh, they don't believe in that, like, voting for candidates for office does much, or they're very skeptical of it. They think the whole process at every level, who, who funds it and the media and everything is, is so thoroughly hijacked by um, capitalist interests that uh, that it's a joke. Um, and even if they will sometimes back left-wing candidates for office, um, you know, they, they still see that as something they're kind of grudgingly doing as part of a wider strategy that would involve organizing and demonstrations and direct action and, and so on. Um, and uh, I am on the more electoralist uh, end of the democratic socialist spectrum. I think we should, you know, vigorously contest every race possible and, you know, I see like AOC beat a longtime incumbent in a Democratic primary, and I'm like, this is great. We need hundreds more of these. You know, this is this is how we win power. And I, I'm also for demonstrations and direct action and organizing, but I don't, I don't see why you can't do both. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and I, you know, I think most people agree, but there's definitely a wing that that doesn't. Um, DSA and Jacobin, two of the main institutions of the, of the modern, um, young left, uh, both went all in on Bernie, uh, DSA endorsed him, which believe it or not was subject to internal debate there. Um, Jacobin endorsed him and, you know, in many ways was like the magazine of Bernie bros. Um, obviously the Chapa Trap House podcast, uh, you know, was, a billion percent in on, on Bernie. Um, his loss, I think, devastates the, you know, broad community that those outlets uh, speak for and express. I mean, uh, and for a few months, mu- and of course it came side by side with this horrific life-altering pandemic. So I think it's been pretty miserable for the last few months. I mean, everyone's been miserable. The left specifically in its political thinking has had a kind of acute misery. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of recriminations flying around. A lot of people are mad at each other. You know, just the other day, uh, the Bernie campaign was kind of riven into factions on Twitter, which was actually kind of entertaining to watch, but uh, I won't get into that too much, <laughs> but uh, Politico reported on it. Um, but uh, 
but you know, I think, um, I think that there was a sense of like, well, where do we go from here? I mean, you know, is AOC going to run for president in four years? Are there local races we can get involved in? The answer is yes, by the way, to the local races. And in fact, this past week, there were several heartwarming stories from a left perspective. Um, we, uh, a, a DSA candidate won in DC's majority African American Ward Four uh, to be on the city council against a kind of machine Democrat incumbent um, in Philly. Uh, a uh, state senate seat was won by a thirty-something uh, DSA member named uh, Nikhil Saval, who is also a co-editor of uh, N Plus One magazine. Oh, they were, he was endorsed by Bernie. Um, also, uh, the left favored incumbent or the left favored challenger in the congressional district that straddles the Bronx and Westchester County that's, um, represented by Elliot Engel, uh, for a very long time. The left challenger there is a guy named Jamal Bowman and, um, he's been on the rise and he got a shot in the arm this week, partly because there was another left challenger who dropped out and endorsed him. Uh, as did AOC and others, and partly because Elliot Engel in one of those like classic politician gaffes, uh, said on a hot mic that, you know, he, he wouldn't be in his district, like listening to people and taking questions if not for, uh, uh, his primary challenge, which is another way of saying, um, I should retire from politics. Uh, right. so, so the, you know, he, you know, he, the, the Mike Kinsley version of the gaffe, uh, which is one of politicians right. tells the truth. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a guy who's represented the Bronx and Westchester for years, but you know, is always in D.C. and you know, anyway. Uh, so there is actually uh, exciting news for for um, left Democrats if you look at the local level. Which is all to say that now people are like, well, everything sucks worse than ever, and there's no electoral out for the foreseeable future, um, and uh, I think. And then there's a, and then there's a spark. And then um, there's a spark, which is okay. which is a high profile uh, police killing of an African American man. Although right. there's okay. been were, were several other high profile incidents. Were you, okay, so so one thing that has surprised yeah. me. Obviously, there's been a lot of surprising stuff for the past couple of months. Uh, one of them was that this went national so quickly. It, as I recall, 2014-15 with the Ferguson protests and other protests in uh, Baltimore um, and other uh, places around the country, they they were mostly localized, and the violence, especially like violence of looting or burning things down, that was very localized. Like there, there weren't after you know we didn't we didn't have, have video of Michael Brown being killed, but like after that, there was it didn't go national within seventy two hours, but it did go. So it, it seems like yeah, you're right. There there was kind of a pressure cooker situation. Everyone's uh, trapped at home. Everyone's yeah. angry and depressed and online and uh, the weather's getting hotter and, um, you know, places were starting to open up anyway, even if that was ill-advised, um, which I guess we'll find out soon enough if it was ill-advised. Um, right. But, uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, I don't in any way want to suggest that Black Lives Matter is not, um, well, that, the killing of uh, George Floyd and, and, and a number of other similar incidents recently, um, you know, aren't the main uh, thing driving all of this. Uh, and also what they speak to, which is the police being heavily armed, well-funded and having total impunity from any kind of civilian control. Um, you know, and people are finally confronting that, but I, but I think um, to understand the despair 
and that so many people, uh, including, to be blunt, so many white people, uh, as well as black people feel, um, you know, because there are, these protests are happening in heavily white parts of the country where, you know, in places like Idaho and Vermont, where the crowds are almost entirely white, um, but also in a multiracial city like I live in, I mean, the crowds are extremely mixed. Uh, and uh, this is um, this is a movement for black lives, but it is also, I think, an explosion of rage at a system that has uh, really devalued everyone. Uh, you know, black people, as, as has been the case throughout American history, get the worst of it. They die the most from COVID. They uh, are incarcerated at the highest rates. They face police violence at the highest rates. They're unemployed at the highest rates. Um, but, you know, everything that this country will do to them, it, it ends up feeling, I, I think, more comfortable doing to everyone in the long run. And uh, there's a lot of despair across racial lines right now. Um, and I think you can, uh, I think something, something snapped a week ago. Um, yeah, I think, I think the cops have lost, you know, there's been a bit of pretty, pretty widespread loss of legitimacy, uh, for the cops among people under 40 or, or something along those lines. Um, there are older people at these protests also, but, um, I think. And keep in mind, just as we don't remember Soviet socialism, we also don't especially if you're younger than you or, you or I. I mean, we're in our mid-30s, but if you're a bit younger than that, you, you don't really remember uh, the, crime the wave. peak of the crime wave either. I mean, yeah. I, I'm old enough to remember that when I grew up outside D.C. that, um, you know, that there were areas of D.C. that were considered very, very dangerous uh, that are now, you know, in many cases, hyper-gentrified. Um, and uh, that, was, that was back in the 90s. And... Uh, you know, similar things have happened in New York and, and a number of other cities over the same time period. Uh, crime is not the main thing that scares people now the way it probably did for our parents' generation. So yeah, uh, that's that, changed too. That makes sense to me. Um, so then, okay, so, you know, uh, do you see, so, you know, there's no uh, concrete demand that the, the, the protest is too loosely organized. But there, are, no, there are some concrete no... demands. There's, I mean, these protests always end up being a, a, a hodgepodge of demands and motivations, but there's uh, a core list of demands. Okay, well, that, you can say uh, indicting the three other cops who were on the scene who didn't which intervene. Is, which has now happened. Which has happened. Um, uh, but then there's just a lot of stuff that's meant to uh, defund police departments and bring them to heel, basically. Okay, well, do you, okay, so defund the police has become uh, a more popular slogan over the past week. Yeah. Uh, do you think this has uh, any likelihood of happening? Has widespread purchase among people who are not on left Twitter? Um, uh, I, I hope so. And, um, you know, I, and I, I don't think it's limited to left Twitter, but it may be the minority position, of course, with, as with so many things, it depends on what you're really saying. I mean, I think if you put it to the American people, um, should we abolish the cops entirely and just like lay them all off at once and have uh, no law enforcement? I'm pretty sure that would, even after everything, be a very unpopular position, even if that is what some people on left Twitter think. Um on the other hand, if you put it as like, uh, should we start scaling back police budgets and redirecting it into social services, into our schools, into uh, unemployment benefits and other things, you know, med medical care and other things that people need right now, uh, into subsidized housing, 
Um, should we find non-police ways to intervene? Like if, you know, let's say there's um, uh, someone having a, a mental health crisis uh, on, on a public street, you know, should heavily armed cops show up to deal with that situation or should social workers show up to deal with that situation? Uh you know, there's a lot of things like that. Um, I mean, I mean, the, the militarization of the cops and, and, that, that's been happening over the past like 20 years or so is, you know, we're seeing we're seeing the evidence all at once. Yeah. You, do they do they need the videos, Humvees? Do they need right? If you look at the videos of the 1968 gas. Chicago Convention, the cops are just wearing like you know t-shirts and pants. They have helmets and they have riot batons. They don't have bulletproof vests. They don't have the guard. It, it, yeah, there's no right. giant or here's, vehicle behind them. Here's another thing that's actually come up a lot in in the last week that I've been really interested by. So you know our our old f- friend Bill De Blasio, of course, while paying lip service to the tragedy of uh, George Floyd and 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 saying that Black Lives Matter, uh, in reality has. Um, defended the cops at every turn and downplayed uh, the constant video evidence that comes out of totally gratuitous and cruel uh, police brutality, yeah. uh, some of which has been captured by friends of mine. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I know local journalists who are out there getting these stories and um, uh, or who are just, you know, protesting and, and being citizens. Yeah, there's also journalists who are covering, you know, covering the, uh, the protests and then the cops uh, attack them, go after them. Or shoot them in the eye. It no, really does that, seem like it's everywhere. It really does seem like the cops either were told explicitly or implicitly, you know, let loose. Well, and, and, there, and there's videos like of, you know, someone just uh, walking a bicycle across the street and the cops start uh, wailing on them. And it's, it's just it, like, it looks like a riot, but it's, you know, the cops are the ones riding. Right. And so, you know, why is Bill de Blasio so cowed? Well, I mean, just in the last few days, uh, they've, you know, implied threats against him and his, his daughter, his daughter who's in her twenties, um, was arrested for apparently peacefully protesting, um, I think uptown, but I'm not sure where, uh, and he found out about it, I think, when, like, the media called him about it. Uh, and he said, you know, I love my daughter and I honor her decision. And But, you know, and I'm, I'm sure she was doing what she thought was right. But everyone needs to obey this curfew. New York now shuts down at 8 p.m. every night. Uh, and, um, I mean... And, and so someone at, at, like, the SBA, Sergeant's Benevolence Association or something on Twitter, posted a photo of her arrest records. Is this this right? It was taken down, but it was up there. She was basically doxxed by a police union and de Blasio. I mean, I think he's scared shitless of these people. I think he thinks they will actually kill him uh, or his family or let some terrible harm befall them. If he doesn't just uh, kiss up to them constantly. Um, And meanwhile, you know, on Twitter, everyone's yelling at him to resign, but apparently like when he came out to check on one of the protests, uh, I think near the Barclays Center in, in central Brooklyn last night, um, or the night before, uh, you know, hundreds of people were booing him and chanting resign. I mean, do you think there's any chance that he'll resign? You know, not if he can help it, but, uh, I, it's hard to see how he comes back to this because right now he's gone from being this kind of bumbling, mediocre mayor who some people hated and some people were fine with. In the last few months, he's now like the mayor on whose watch we lost tens of thousands of people to COVID, some of them probably preventable, um, and uh, uh, and in which the city had 
police riots. And I think that's actually the proper term for them, police riots. It's the police who are rioting, not to mm-hmm. say that nobody else is, but uh, overwhelmingly against peaceful protesters. Oh, I was going to say the other thing de Blasio keeps talking about, um, you know, he, he's he's really concerned for the safety of our cops. He's also really concerned for uh, businesses, you know, that are getting looted and vandalized. Um, and, you know, there is a left tendency, which I'll sometimes indulge to just be like, oh, you care so much about property. Well, why don't you care about black lives? Which I agree with. I mean, that is like, there is a, you know, when, when Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing came out like uh, uh, 30 years ago, um, spoiler alert for this 30-year-old excellent movie, it, it ends with um, the police uh, shooting a black man in Brooklyn and, and a riot uh, being set off in which um, the pizza joint, which is white owned and significantly black operated where most of the movie has taken place uh, is, you know, has its window smashed in and is burned to the ground. And the thing that Spike Lee has always pointed out is that um, a lot of white people left that movie and uh, in like 89 or whenever it was. And, and they were like, you know, why did he, burned down the place. Like, why did he burn down his, you know, his, his boss was, was, was a good white man. Why did they burn down his pizza place? And, you know, no one was ever upset about the fact that a man had been shot and killed. Which Radio was, Rahim. Radio Rahim, which was the immediate, um, uh, you know. Right. But doesn't, okay, I, I haven't and, seen and this movie in a number of years, but doesn't you he seen the Spike number... Lee character throw the trash can through yes. the window of pizzeria yeah. in order to uh, prevent... Uh, the murder of the uh, to like allow the employees to escape or something, and then it gets burned down, but he saves their lives essentially. I think I, I think, thought that's what I happened. think that's I think that's right. Now that you mention it, um, it's been a while since I've seen it too. But um, but anyway, the point being, like this is an old thing, which you then saw a few years later with the L.A. riots and stuff of uh, you know white people, including kind of white you know sensible liberal types, being just very very concerned about property when when black lives are being uh, taken away. Um, but the thing that I've been struck by is uh, that, you know, there are like 8,000 cops out at night enforcing the curfew. Like, you know, a lot of the shops that are being smashed are, are like, uh, you know, high-end uh, fashion chains in, in places like Soho in Manhattan, where, which are, you know, incredibly well-insured and are going to be just fine and we're closed anyway. Um, but you know, if, if we care about property, you could, I don't know, put a cop in front of each of them and then people yeah, it, it, will it, detect it, them. But the cops, it does almost cops, seem like they, the cops personally let it, let it happen. Would you agree with that? Are both, the cops are both letting it happen. So they have a justification for what they right. can do. And the reason they're actually deployed is to terrorize protesters. Like that's what they actually want to do is, is beat up and tear gas protesters. And that's what they're doing mm-hmm. night after um, night. Yeah, I think the okay. Let, let's um, maybe we should move towards wrapping up. But I want to ask. Yeah. Okay, here's the so here's the crash question. Um, you know, uh, uh, destructive uh, protests, uh, people throwing stuff at cops, uh, and then people breaking windows and looting stores and burning uh, a you know a police building down in Minneapolis. Uh, these are all things that I would think would make uh, Donald Trump happy uh, because uh, uh, a sense of sort of like chaos, especially like. Uh, uh, black people causing chaos that might uh, cut, you know, get your uh, your house burned down or something like that. Uh, that's what Donald Trump is against. Um, so, so at the beginning, I kind of thought, um, you know, Trump Trump is smiling uh, if he's capable of that at, at this point, uh, seeing this. But then, uh, as this continued, and as there's 
you know, it became really clear how much, how, like, how out of control the cops are. And also just a, like, you know, the, the sense of chaos in, in 1968, um, helped Richard Nixon because he wasn't in office and he said he could fix it. Uh, the sense of chaos in 2020, I don't, I don't really think anymore is going to help Donald Trump because he's clearly not fixing it and he doesn't know what to do. And I don't know if anyone yeah, he's being incumbent. Right he's being incumbent. And no matter how dreadful a candidate Joe Biden is, and I do think he's a dreadful candidate, no matter, you know, how, you know, kind of disengaged his campaign can seem, um, the, I think, you know, Trump has never been popular. Um, he is less popular than ever. And it is a irrefutable statement that, uh, on his watch, a hundred thousand plus Americans died. Um, the economy collapsed and, uh, you know, what you want to call our public order or whatever collapsed. Um, it's affected everyone in the country. Uh, and, um, you know, normal U.S. history would predict that a president who uh, saw that happen uh, on their watch, and especially in their last year of their first term, is not going to get reelected. Against all that, um, they really have rigged the system quite uh, thoroughly with, you know, voter suppression and uh, who knows how the pandemic will intersect with that. We'll get a second wave of it. Um and, you know, Trump didn't win a majority in the first place. He lost by three million votes. And our system is is rigged against um, Democrats and Democratic constituencies. So, uh, you know, I, I don't rule out that Trump could win. But and, and also Joe Biden, I think, is a very, very weak candidate with various liabilities. But I but I'm coming to think as of now, none of that matters very much because, um you know, that there's just a sufficient majority in the country that just kind of wants this nightmare to end and is going to vote for Joe Biden as a just kind of empty vessel for that sentiment. Like Trump is unacceptable. Trump has been a catastrophe. And as uncool as it is to say this on the left, that's true. I mean, the system was broke and screwed up forever before Trump. It got us Trump. Uh, most of it will still be intact when Trump leaves. Um, you know, Joe Biden is not going to bring about the progressive revolutionary changes we need. Uh, I agree with all of that strongly, but I do think the left sometimes has a little bit of trouble admitting that like Donald Trump is exceptionally dangerous and we really should get rid of him <laughs> no matter how much we hate everything else. Uh, and, you know, well, encourage I, your friends on the left to, uh, to engage in some electoralism, uh, and, well, and vote you know, for I'm, I, I, I'm gonna get my, uh, my absentee, well, not absentee, but my mail-in ballot, um, and it'll, I hope, have Bernie Sanders' name on it, so I can vote for Bernie, which the De- New York Democratic Party has been trying very hard to stop that from happening, because that's just what they're like. Well, it's partly to be jerks to the many of us in this state who like Bernie Sanders. Um, but it's also, um, the, the real reason they're doing it is to suppress turnout for incumbent, uh, for, 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 for down ballot challengers, yeah. you know, like that Bowman angle race. They figure, you know, fewer people will come out to vote for the challengers if they can't vote for Bernie. Right. Um, so yeah, and 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 their their claim, which they got sued by, among others, the Yang campaign for, and lost. But then they're challenging the, uh, they're appealing that. Um, their case was that it's too dangerous to vote right now. Which, first of all, the DNC just told 
very dangerous elections all over the country to try to shut down the primaries um, in Wisconsin and so on. And second of all, uh, they weren't actually canceling the primaries. They were just taking Bernie's name off the ballot. And third of all, everyone can get a mail-in. So never trust anything you hear from the New York Democratic Party. (laughs) They are compulsive liars. Um, They are snakes, tweet snake emojis at them. Uh, And uh, at Andrew Cuomo and and his minions. And, um, you know, know, vote vote for... uh, progressive primary challengers if you can uh everywhere you can um okay i want to just uh, go back to the thing i mentioned at the beginning which is uh you know uh the garden state new jersey where i am right now oh, yeah. uh, my, my home state uh seemingly uh-huh. no no violence no looting um there was this uh, big piece in the times which i'll link to uh, examining why uh nothing went wrong in the new york protests it praised the mayor there whose name is Roz baraka who's the son of the uh radical poet amiri baraka um, it praised him very highly and says everyone like really believes in him and trusts him. And that, w- so there was a lot of communication between the organizers and the cops. Um, and, uh, but Newark is also, you know, it, well, I mentioned this in the article, Newark is a city ha- that had devastating riots in the 1960s. And maybe there, I don't know, maybe this is just kind of like a memory here of how awful the 1960s riots were, how they destroyed the, the cities of New Jersey. And, um, even if people weren't alive back then, they have a sense that they don't want to <laughs> repeat that, that sort of thing. Um, well, maybe, although a lot of cities rioted in 68 and have been uh, seeing these, uh, I guess we'll call them riots now, I mean, including my native D.C., uh, which had uh, terrible yeah, riots. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, there, were, there were riots ac- across the country. Um, yeah. so, so I don't know exactly why, um, and it could just be chance, and, and who knows what will happen in the coming days. I know there was a, there was a protest in Hoboken uh, today, and there's one in Jersey City where I'm t- uh, tomorrow. And so, you know, the, I mean, the, the thing a, a, a peaceful protest can turn violent if something bad happens, if the cops set it off, if it's too hot outside or something. So these things are chancy. Um, or there's just some people show up who want to steal some sneakers from a from a store and want an excuse to, to do something like that. So, so who knows? But New Jersey seems to be doing – a better job than any other place I can see in the U.S. currently. Well, uh, I, ha- I haven't checked that, but it is interesting. I mean, I definitely get the sense that it has, it sounds like Newark has a better mayor, and I get the sense that New Jersey has a better governor than uh, than New York does. Um, the, yeah, there are people who, the, the governor of New, New Jersey is, is this guy, Phil Murphy. They're, isn't he, like, super rich but surprisingly progressive? On, I think he like, is another, He is a Wall Street guy. There's a, there's a history in that. John Corzine was a similar rich Wall Street jerk who well, these guys who like saw up close how messed up the system was while getting rich off it and then they they go into office and actually like do good stuff because of that right so so, so that the, the, yeah. the chris arnade of uh right? <laughs> arnotti chris arnotti. arnotti sorry chris and if you want my full if any listeners viewers out there want my full explanation for why i think joe biden's gonna win uh convincingly it's in the my recent conversation with chris arnotti um okay so maybe the final thing and we can just do this real briefly or we can even hold it for another conversation is um okay at some point hopefully the pandemic will recede the uh urban unrest will you know, fade away, and then New York City is still going to be there. Uh, but what it, what it was it going to look like at some point, three or five years in the future? Um, you know, it, it's always dangerous to predict this stuff. I am very scared for this city right now for many reasons. Um, but uh, if I think in the medium term, I have some optimism about New York's resilience. I mean, I think it it is the um, undisputed center of so many 
incredibly important activities in this country and, um, you know, a place that people feel fiercely loyal to, that people feel drawn to. Um, if it loses some population over this, and certainly there's been, I don't know, like a few hundred thousand New Yorkers, um, which is a smaller percentage than you think, but uh, have, have left the city for, you know, the suburbs or second homes or, or vacation homes or whatever, which putting aside the questionable um, public health aspects of that at the peak of the pandemic, um, the impact it may have had in places like the Catskills or the Berkshires or the Hamptons uh, for like, you know, people who actually live year round in those communities. Uh, it also, um, it, you know, you don't really see this where I live in, uh, in Flatbush in central Brooklyn, because most of my neighbors are West Indian immigrants, uh, who aren't super rich and even the kind of white gentrifier set that lives here are probably not, uh, the, the, you know, are, are generally young and, and don't have huge incomes at the moment. Um, and, uh, so my neighborhood has actually been very lively through all of this, but by most accounts, if you're on like the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side or Greenwich Village or Tribeca, it's like a ghost town now. Uh, you know, these places have just emptied out and, uh, uh, you know, like I think, so I think that, you know, the New York media is very centered on Manhattan, the elite parts of the media, like the, the major corporate news channels and, um, the New York times and wall street journal and so on are all in Manhattan. And that's, that's the world they and their kind of most, you know, prestigious columnists and so on are seeing, um, if you're in the more kind of young or alternative side of media, um, you're much more likely to live in Brooklyn. And uh, if you haven't left to, you know, go stay with family or whatever, then what you're seeing is, um, uh, you know, people who are just kind of living through this. Um, the impact is racially disparate. I mean, I know, you know, among, among young white people, I know, uh, it's also age disparate and health disparate, obviously, but, uh, most like, I know a few people who've had mild cases, which sometimes isn't as mild as it sounds, but, um, you know, but, but there's, there's been a horrific death in the general vicinity of me. And I live near a, a major public hospital with, with the times reported deteriorating infrastructure, which has been a, a COVID ward. So, it slowed down significantly, but for the first month or two, it was like constant sirens. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, now, now of course we're hearing sirens, um, along with helicopters because now Brooklyn is, uh, is more of a, a war zone, but, um, but like, uh, you know, I think it's easy to get into stereotypes and, and, and cliches and not, like back them up with numbers here, but I will say there is a sort of sense, some kind of anecdotal sense around here that like um, a certain number of rich and disproportionately white people leaving the city wouldn't be so bad. Now, I think when you look at how the city and the state fund their budget, it might actually be very bad if uh, the tax base gets um, devastated and um, public services start getting slashed, which will hurt everyone and especially poor New Yorkers at the same in time, you know, if, if it has any relaxing effect on rents or home prices, if it, um, if, if the city can just sort of like breathe a little bit more in some ways, um, 
that wouldn't be an entirely terrible thing. And there is a sense that like the people who are leaving are probably disproportionately the people who, you know, weren't, who didn't really believe in the real New York anyway, you know, I mean, what does that mean? But like people, <laughs> many, many are saying this and, um, uh, it, you know, so in a few years, I mean, God willing, this plague will be over much sooner than that. Um, the economy will rebound, God willing, not too many, uh, small businesses will go under. I'm very frightened about that. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, both, both because the, the, these are iconic places that build and support communities in many cases, and also because, you know, they employ a huge number of people. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you know, think about how many people in this city work in, um, bars and restaurants and, and, uh, you know, how, how in many cases, bars and restaurants that were doing very well and suddenly are gone. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, what a, what a complete catastrophe that is. Um, so, you know, the sooner the pandemic can end, the sooner we can rebound from all of that. Uh, some people will never rebound and it's really depressing to think about. Um, but, uh, I feel pretty confident that New York will still be here and will still be New York, uh, in a few years. And, um, you know, in, until the floodwaters rise, of course, and then we're really screwed. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many things that are seem intrinsic to New York City that um, require a lot of people to be in a small space, a small enclosed space. Uh, yeah. Uh, subways, most obviously, uh, Broadway shows, uh, yeah, bars and restaurants, uh, comedy clubs, uh, music performances. Um, well, you know, the other thing which um, people are pushing for now, and there's been a tiny bit of movement on it, but there needs to be so much more is like, you know, now that it's summer, and of course the, the past week has kind of thrown a wrench in all of this, especially with de Blasio and his curfews. But there were hopes that like, um, we close a lot more streets to traffic since there, you know, people need to get around less. And then we would have, you know, cause bars and restaurants and cafes and other small businesses in the city in general are much smaller than almost anywhere else. And uh, even if they're fancy ones, you might be sitting very close together with other people. Uh, so, you know, let them sprawl out onto the sidewalk and even into the street. The transmission rates outside seem to be very low. Uh, yeah, they, people... they've started doing that here in Jersey City, closing off yeah. some streets, some lanes of streets to and allow could... outdoor seating for restaurants. But that's, I mean, that's that's obviously temporary. Since you I can't mean, do that during the winter or if it's raining, so. I mean, right now, if you go to a, a commercial corridor in, in Brooklyn and on Cortelli Road or Flatbush or places like that, you know, what you'll see for weeks, the bars in particular were just closed. You know, the restaurants were feeling out takeout and now more and more of them are doing uh, takeout, um, which still, you know, hurts a lot of their business. Although I suspect that now is actually a better time um, business wise to run like let's say a corner Indian restaurant or Chinese restaurant that, you know, had a couple tables, but mostly relied on takeout um, in a residential neighborhood compared to, let's say you had a um, critically lauded high end trendy restaurant in um, the East village, like prune, which the uh, owner of wrote that piece in the times. Oh, that was, well, yeah. I, 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 know, I, even if you're not interested in, Fine dining. I, I definitely recommend um, everyone read that piece because it's, it's fascinating seeing how it's a, restaurants it's a actually great work. Piece. It's a great piece. And, and you know, if you ran a place like that, and places like that were profitable, although they had really razor-thin margins, uh, you know, which she goes into a lot. But um, 
places like that have been uh, so devastated because their ambience and their um, service were a big part of it uh, because this isn't the kind of food you get to go usually. Um, and, you know, because uh, that those spaces just can't be recreated anytime soon. Uh, but, you know, bars, meanwhile, were totally closed for a while. Um, but recently they've started doing, um, I mean, we've, Without actually ending them, the cops have basically relaxed um, public drinking laws, and now people just drink on the street, and it's kind of fun. But I miss bars. Yeah, I, I mean, there's other municipalities that don't have no problem or, or essentially just turn a blind eye to public drinking the whole time, so that's not a big deal. I just want to um, uh, uh, recommend a piece that appeared in New York Magazine. I think it was Justin Davidson, their architecture critic, um, about a month or six weeks ago that was a history of uh, the various disasters that have befallen New York city and how those things uh, changed the city. And often they led to uh, positive changes and uh, you know, and the most famous one of which is um, the, so there was, you know, this, this idea that like uh, cholera or other transmissible diseases were kind of like a miasma that floated in like, uh, you know, condensed spaces and so in order to get out of those spaces, you need to go to like a rural uh, area or somewhere with open, you know, open space. And so that helped uh, the argument for uh, building Central Park. Um, the miasma theory was false. It, you know, that wasn't the way these diseases were, were <laughs> transferred between people. But the idea that like you needed fresh air and you needed this kind of pastoral landscape um, for the uh, physical health of people living in tenements um, right. led to that kind of uh, you know, Prospect Park and, and, and Central Park. And, well, I, I, live near Prospect Park. I live near Prospect Park and it has made my experience tolerable. And I suppose if I'm going to judge people for leaving the city, I should at least, it should at least cross my mind. Do they live in walking distance to a beautifully landscaped park or don't they? Because if they don't, uh, I can understand why like yards start to seem more appealing. But uh, my situation, I'm, I'm for many reasons, very lucky. Um, we should uh, wrap up, but I will do one quick plug since I didn't mention at the beginning. Um, I wear a few different hats, but the biggest is um, uh, I work at Jewish Currents, the um, left-wing Jewish publication that has uh, uh, actually, you know, had a uh, some some buzz in the last year and some growth. And um, uh, I encourage you to subscribe. I encourage you to donate. At the very least, I encourage you to look at our website and sign up for the uh, newsletter program I run there, which is free. Uh, just click on the newsletter tab at the top of the homepage uh, or any of our articles and uh, jewishcurrents.org. Okay, cool. Well, this was um, a very interesting conversation. Uh, not always a pop, you know, one that led me towards optimistic thoughts, but um, <laughs> There's not a lot to be optimistic about right now. But, yeah, but, that's you know. true. Uh, but thank you for coming on and talking about uh, that old rascal, Bill de Blasio. Um, and uh, we'll, uh, so I uh, thank you to all of our viewers and listeners as well. Uh, thank you, Dave. And uh, we'll see you again next time. Be safe.